You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Well, good morning, church. It's good to worship with you all this morning. It's really it's an honor. If you don't know, my name is uh, Pastor Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, today, as you heard, we are in the second chapter of Nahum. And um, the reason why I asked, I was asking well, if we could turn on the lights is because today's, today's text is a bit dark already. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty... Um, well, you, you'll hear it for yourself. It's a pretty dark part of Scripture. Uh, if you don't know, Nahum is a minor prophet, and this book is prophesying wrath and judgment that is to fall on the Assyrians. Maybe you know them as the people of Nineveh. Uh, but Nahum is a small book, and it's packed with um, some serious heavy uh, metal poetry, as you're going to read here in a minute. And I'm going to actually want to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. And I want you to appreciate... Um, God's language and God's anger towards uh, those who are his enemies and by extension yours. So listen, this is verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. It says, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the square. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. What a poem. In short, what this is meant to do is taunt and warn the enemy of God that he is coming and that there is a vengeance and a wrath coming like they, the world has ever known and like they have never seen. Even the way it starts, right? Uh, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Right? God is telling his enemy, get ready. Get your best defense you can. Draw up your plans because the Lord is coming. Like the great theologian Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. They too would have a plan and it would all come crumbling down. All their building, all their planning, all their drilling, it would all be in vain as God destroys them. And in this poem, this song, God makes two promises. First is a promise of death, 
and a promise of life. I know what you're thinking as I read those two to you. You're thinking, Jeremy, you only have two points? What's going on? Well, don't get too uh, internally praising for me because I have subpoints, many, many, many subpoints. So we're going to get into that, and I can't wait. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for all you have done for us. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, we can be encouraged um, by your love, but also by your justice. Lord, you are a God who has lavished us with grace and mercy. And you withheld your judgment from us and you have given it to your son. And Lord, I pray today we see the beauty of both, your grace and your justice. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first promise is a promise of death. I know that sounds like an odd promise and one that no one welcomes or maybe wants to see fulfilled. But this promise, it should be said, is to the wicked, to the unrighteous. That's who the promise is made to, to destroy those who war against God and his bride. The Assyrians, though they are the historical group of people that are immediately being discussed, uh, it is, we should know that the promise is to them specifically. But something we need to remember as we read this entire poem, that this promise is bigger than just the Assyrians. They simply represent the unbelieving world who Jesus says are the children of Satan and will be vessels of destruction. Now this promised death has three components. The first one is that this death is going to be terrifying. This is verse 10 of chapter 2. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish and all loins. All faces grow pale. What we see here described for us by God as a psychological terror that awaits the Assyrians. The realization that death has arrived and there is absolutely zero escape for what the Lord has planned for them. They're going to meet their maker, right? And he is not pleased. Hence the trembling. Hence the heart melts and the anguish that's felt through their body. The faces of the defeated foes turn pale because their defeat is not going to lead them to grace. It's leading them to judgment. And after death, they must meet the God they spent a lifetime mocking, waiting for punishment. Now, waiting for punishment is terrifying. I experienced this quite a bit as a kid. I was apparently um, apparently a a troubling child. I, I mean, even getting on, like, I remember like, getting on the bus, my, my bus driver, every morning I'd get on the bus, and every morning she would look at me and say, Jeremy, you will not steal my joy today. Every morning. I don't know what was wrong with me, but that's what she'd say every morning. But, like, at one point in time, I was, we had, I had a duffel bag, and I had a bunch of cigars in it. And my, my dad finds these cigars, and I remember him, he, he calls me into the room, and, you know, he had his, like, dad voice on, so I knew I was in trouble. And he said, son, what are these? And I looked and I said, I don't know what, I don't know what those are. I've never seen them in my life. Well, he knew I was lying, and he's like, they're cigars, son. You don't know what a cigar is? I'm like, never seen. I don't, I don't even know what you do with them. Um, don't know what they are. He soon, he, you know, it came out, okay, I, I do know what cigars are, but I've never had one. I've never tried one, dad. Never tried one. He said, who gave them to you? And I mentioned the friend that I liked the least, 
in my life. And so I told him, Will Basham. I said, Will Basham gave me these. And so he, uh, he, gave, he, he said, oh, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to take one of those cigars, and you're going to go out on the dock, and you're going to smoke the whole thing in 30 minutes. I was like, okay. <laughs> no! You know, I'm pretending to be upset. I'm like, I think he was trying to make me sick, right? Smoke a cigar, cigar real fast, because I never smoked one. And I, and I grabbed one, I went down, and I, I cut it and started smoking. It was just enjoying my punishment, as, as you do. And, and eventually, he emerges from the water, like, just stands straight up at the end of the dock, and his mouth curled kind of like the Grinch, his smile, because in that moment, I was caught. Not only does he know that I had those cigars, but in the way that I was smoking, he's like, you've done this before. So everything, I was caught in not only having them, but lying to him. I was caught in all of my sins and transgressions, and it was absolutely terrifying. And in the same way, the Assyrians, right, are caught in all of their sins, all of what they thought they were hiding from God is going to be made known to them. And it's that terrifying reality that God knows everything that they are guilty of. And it's terrifying that everything they had built, all they acquired would become nothing more than a footstool for Jesus. They must think and wait as death approaches, escorting them to their judge where they will feel the weight of God's wrath, hence why they are trembling and feeling anguish. But this is just a shadow of just what the entire unbelieving world will experience in Christ's return. All their mockery and all their disobedience to their God that they refuse to worship, all their transgressions will flood to their mind. And can you imagine for a moment the terror of the world when they see the Lord arrive? So not only will this death be terrifying, it's also going to be violent and bloody, which I, I love this part of God's poem. I think it's awesome. Um, a little violence in poetry is kind of cool. So this is verse 5. It says, He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Now, by the way, he, by the way, here is the Assyrian king. Um, the enemy uh, remembers as he sees the impossible onslaught coming that he needs to confront or that he has to confront God's wrath, whether he's going to like it or not, that's something he's going to have to do. And I imagine the generals, as the king is staring into death approaching, the generals begging for him to give them orders. Where do we go? What part of the castle do we, do we, should we stand at? Where, what weapon should we get? What infantry regiment should we get ready and armed? What do we do? And that moment where he snaps back to reality, giving commands, uselessly sending men to die for a fallen kingdom. And scripture even defines it, right? They're, they're stumbling as they're rushing to the wall, but all in vain. Because the enemies of God are about to be overwhelmed. And all the time of repentance has passed. And what are they to do? Think about it. Whether it be the Assyrians or when Christ comes back, what are the enemies of God supposed to do? Are the Assyrians supposed to just lay down their weapons? Are they to die without fighting? Are they to, try to, are they to retreat and hide? 
Where will they hide from God? Name three continues, says the chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches and they dart like lightning. The imagery used here is what we see as this, this one of these epic battles, right? Seen in like the movies like Braveheart. But these chariots, right, these vicious weapons of war, and on the wheels they would have swords on them. So as they push through crowds of soldiers, it would just slice off legs and maim legs as they are making their way through. Cypress spears mentioned in the ancient world were known as incredibly strong and durable, the best spears of all spears. And so simply the Lord is expressing to them, guys, my, my weapons are better than your weapons. I'm going to, you have no chance. The onslaught is going to be unstoppable and it's going to be brutal. Verse 3 says, the shield of his mighty men is red and his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Simply a poetic way of saying there will be blood and the ground and the clothes will be saturated with the blood of all of his enemies. He continues, verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. After the massacre, this once proud and beautiful city now lays in ruin. And all their achievements that they clung to slips through their hands. And greatness, he tells them, is never to return to them. And if a terrifying and violent death is not enough, the Lord says this death is also going to be humiliating. Verse 7 says, its mistress is stripped and she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. We see the public humiliation starting with the queen a symbol not only of royalty, but of the future family line of the king. The longevity of the empire and what, what happens to her. She's stripped naked for all to see and carried off. The future of this family is destroyed before their conception. And we see those slave girls moaning because they know if the queen's not safe, well, neither am I. Verse 11, where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? I love that because if, if you ever wanted to combine the genre of horror with scripture, here it is. Because what's being described, and by the way, the question is, where is the lion's den? This tells you a cultural difference. Some of you may think of something else completely when I ask that question. This is not, not off exit 28, beside Tudors, right? This is, this is the king's place. So back then, the Assyrians had a symbol, the king's den. It was a lion. And so asking, where is the lion's den, is where does the king lay his head? And so he's, where is the lioness? Where is the queen? Where is the cubs? That means, where is the king's children. And so what we see is the Lord going through the halls of the castle 
hunting not only the king, his wife, but also the children. This once proud people who were a predator have now become prey. It's eerie to think of that day. Again, this has a historical reference. God is going to kill the king of Assyria and his family. And also, by the way, notice in humiliation in humiliating fashion. Not on the battlefield where they can claim bravery, but as they're tucked away in their house, in their home, in their bed, showing that they had retreated as far as they could retreat to the safest place they could think. And it's there that the Lord will have his vengeance. But again, this is a snapshot of what is to come. I think it really is important to remember that. That this snapshot of a day of where more than the Assyrian king is being defeated, but our adversary, the devil, who prowls like a lion seeking to devour, when he and all of his children become prey, to the point where none of his offspring have a place to hide. And church, I want to encourage you with something I think we often forget Though we've not seen the victory that's foreshadowed in full because Christ has not yet returned, I want you to remember what Scripture says about you, the church, and the gospel that we carry with us. It says, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. And I think oftentimes, as the church, we see ourselves as victims, defeated when rather, Scripture paints us as on the offense, hunting and attacking against a dark kingdom in the name of Christ, Scripture says we are more than conquerors. But I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. I know sometimes it feels all too depressing when we see and we know of loved ones that we care about that are suffering and hurting. When we watch the news and we see constant tragedy over and over again as we see sin swelling around us it's hard to remember that victory has already been given but Nahum reminds us all that God works against kingdom of darkness, and that those who oppose him will be humiliated, then we'll see the fullness, we will see the fullness of that victory when Christ returns triumphantly, and what a beautiful day that will be. And so it's that, for that reason that we have to make sure that our hearts do not grow weary, for there is one is coming where we'll see in full what Nahum saw in part, a promised victory. Now at this point, the text has been very poetic. And there's one more verse that we didn't read in the beginning. It's verse 13. And uh, the Lord stops using poetry for a second, seemingly to make sure that he and the Assyrians are going to be on the same page, right? So it's like the Lord stops the poetic language and says, all right, just to be clear, this is what I'm talking about. And this is verse 13. It says, Behold, I am against you, 
declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Now, when the Lord says, I am against you, that's, that's bad news. But notice the last line here. It says, your messengers shall no longer be heard. Now, that may seem insignificant, um, but oftentimes messengers were sent to different kingdoms to intimidate, to instill fear, and to threaten, and to demand things on behalf of their king. And scripture actually gives us a recording of one of these incidences with an Assyrian king sending an Assyrian messenger to the people of Judah, those in which that, this is during the time of Nahum. And this is 2 Kings 18. It's not going to be behind you, but, but you can turn there in your Bible or you can just listen to what I'm saying. It says, And the Rabshakeh said to them, this is the Assyrian, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust? He this Assyrian messenger questions their power, mocks them. In fact, he continues in this chapter and makes fun of their military ability, their military might. He makes fun of their diplomatic decisions and even mocks and makes fun of their God who is supposed to protect them. Now, as the Jewish, uh, the, the ambassadors, if you will, the, are listening to this criticism and insult, this is, what he, this is what they say back to him in verse uh, 26. He says, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. That was like the universal language for diplomacy. He said, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So simply they're going, stop, tell, stop telling what you're going to do to us and that we're in bad news. We don't want the news to get out to the troops and to our city that you're threatening us. Right? We want to keep that on the down low. Now listen to how the Assyrian messenger responds. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat your own dung and to drink your own urine? A passage you don't want to get tattooed on your arm. Make sure no one puts 2 Kings 18.27 on you. But here's the point. When Nahum writes from God that he's going to shut the mouth of every messenger of this kingdom, this is what he has in mind. Those who would mock and threaten and try to instill fear into God's people, he's going to shut their mouth and they will eat their words. Know that the Lord remembers this. He remembers what these people said to his bride. And he draws it to their memory. Now, one of my favorite movies of all time, it's amazing, is Braveheart. And there's a line in it, it's a great line. It says, an assault on the king's men is the same as an assault on the king himself. You remember that? When William Wallace attacks a guard. Well, that was, that's not necessarily historically true. Uh, that If you had stabbed a guard, that was not, historically speaking, like stabbing the king. But if you assaulted a family member of the king, 
one of his children, or the queen. Well, then it was an attack on the throne. And so whether it is the Assyrian kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, or Satan's kingdom, all have assaulted the family of the king, and thus it is the same as an assault on the king himself. And God, out of a love for you and a hatred for evil, does not forget. And vengeance will be his, and victory will be ours. And this very dire warning towards the Assyrians and likewise to the unbelieving world, uh, there's a wonderful promise for God's people, and it's small. You can easily skip over it as we read it, that there's a promise for you, those who've been declared righteous, those who are lavished with grace. To you, there's a promise, and it's a promise of life, which is my second point. Like the first, right? I have two subpoints here. But the first one is life will be restorative. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Now, for a moment, Nahum turns the lens to those who are downtrodden, who've suffered under the hands of sin, who have looked up, no doubt, and asked, God, the same question David did in Psalm 13. God, where are you? Have you forgotten about me? Why are you hiding your face from me? And how long will you do it? I mean, think of what Nahum sees. How many have been killed? How long will a nation be humiliated? But this is not the end. And it's a needed reminder for them, but it's also a needed reminder for us, that even in dark moments, even in moments where all seems lost, it is not the end. And your God is not going to abandon you, his bride, his body. Now, the sad part to all of this is when Nahum is getting this promise of restoration. This restoration will not happen in his lifetime, nor in the lifetime of his family or their family. Because after the Assyrians, if you know the story, guess who comes next? The Babylonians. And they're even worse. It gets worse before it gets better. There is a restoration that's a shadow of a greater restoration when the Persians come along. If you know who this is, this is Esther's husband Xerxes who then sends Ezra and Nehemiah to go and restore Israel, the temple and the city. But again, this restoration of a nation is a foreshadow of a greater restoration that will happen with a people. The promise of a life restored is the same promise given to the church. And though at the end of our life on this side of heaven we may be war-torn, worn out, tired, our gray hair and wrinkles show the burdens that we bear and have bared, the Lord promises to present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that the church might be holy and without blemish. 
the full restoration of Israel, the full restoration of that splendor is found in the New Testament church. A people who are restored and reconciled to him. No longer having to worry about God removing his presence. But rather God telling each of you who have trusted Christ, I've given you a down payment, I've sealed you with my spirit. A permanent reconciliation given a a reconciliation that will ultimately lead to a restoration of a people who are once far off but now called as children. The second point, subpoint rather, is life will be transformative. Now I want to say in the same spot, I want to read the same text. A few names jump out. I don't want to skip over it. It says in verse 2, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Now you might ask, why does God mention to Nahum the Jacob. And I want to tell you a little bit about Jacob. If you don't know, some of you, most of you probably know Jacob. He, uh, he was the son of Isaac. Um, he was a mama's boy, and he had an older brother named Esau, who was a daddy's boy, right? Uh, Esau was his dad's favorite, and the defining trait of Esau was that he was incredibly hairy. Uh, but he was a hairy hunter. That's what he was. And he was outdoors hunting like you do. Uh, there was trucks. He probably would have owned two. And... Uh, Jacob, uh, I imagine him like in D&D, right? He stayed inside most of the time, probably really pale. Uh, again, mama's boy. Um, well, what happens is big, hairy Esau comes in, and he's really hungry, and Jacob deceives his brother. And he says, uh, I'll give you this meal. You give me your, your birthright, right? Um, Esau, probably not taking that very seriously, um, tricks him and takes it. Now, the, um, he, he, he takes the food, takes the, the, uh, takes the trick. Now, Jacob goes on to not only deceive uh, his brother Esau, but then he dresses up like a hairy man, and he deceives his dad Isaac on his deathbed, and then he, and with his mom's help, and then he runs away with, all, with a bunch of wealth, a bunch of servants that he later acquires. He is doing well for himself because of his deception. Now, here's the crazy thing. The scripture says God loved Jacob. So despite Jacob's failures, the Lord blesses Jacob. But one day, Jacob has to encounter his big hairy brother. Uh, he knows that Esau is coming for him, and he says, this guy's going to kill me. I stole from him, and he likes to hunt. I mean, that's what he's going to do to me. And so Jacob is terrified of a violent and bloody death that's going to be humiliating. And he does like most men do. He goes out in the woods to be, because he's concerned. And like most men, he finds a stranger and wrestles with him in the middle of the night. Now, this is a really weird part of the text. But I just want to say, it's, there's, there's a point and there's a reason why Nahum puts this in here. The night that Jacob wrestles, this is what it reads. Oh, I'll, I'll give you the, the two-second version. He, as they're wrestling, it's kind of like a father wrestling a child. Um, Jacob's winning. And then God's had enough, because that's who he's wrestling with. And he just pops Jacob's hip at a socket. And now Jacob is laying on the floor, clinging to the feet of Jesus, screaming for a blessing. Now the Lord says to him, what is your name? Now this is God speaking. So he knows very well what his name is. And Jacob, who's on the ground with a hip out of a socket, screams out, Jacob! Jacob! 
Now, I want to talk about slightly why that's important. Jacob means deceiver. It means usurper. Sorry to anyone whose mother named you Jacob. But it means deceiving usurper. And that's exactly what Jacob had been. A deceiving usurper who deceived his brother, who deceived his dad. But now he is now clinging to God and he's having to scream this out. Who are you, Jacob? I'm deceiver usurper. It's like a public admittance of who he is, of what he is, what his nature is. The Lord says to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Now, this is not just a random wrestling match in Scripture. This is not an accidental mention by name. What we see is a transformation of an individual that's going to foreshadow a transformation of a nation, of a people. We see that Jacob must come to grips with who he is, deceiver, usurper, but that no longer will be his identity once the Lord intervenes. But now he is Israel, which means God prevails. So no longer, Jacob, will you identify with your past failings. Now your identity will be in God's victory. And that was true for the day of Nahum and those people. One day, Israel, you will not have to identify with your failings. One day, there will be a day where the majesty of Jacob will become the majesty of Israel and you will identify in God's victory. Church, that is you. You do not have to identify forever with your past failings. As a redeemed people, as a transformed people, you get to identify in God's victory. It's beautiful and wonderful news. And it's why Nahum writes it to remind his people a transformation is coming. And it's why it's encouraging. It's why it's life-giving. Because they won't have to be a broken, humiliated people forever. A hurting people forever. And despite the people of Judah constantly failing again and again and again and again, constantly falling to temptations, constantly struggling and worshiping idols, constantly not following the statutes of the Lord. Despite that, God promises through Nahum that he's not done with his people. And I think that's something that we need reminded of today. That God is not done with you. He's not done working. And whatever situation you're going through or you see the condition of the world, God is not done working. A transformation, a full transformation is coming. Now, we have partaken in a part transformation as we have stepped out of being dead in our sin and alive in Christ. But this is only in part. One day we will see in full a transformation 
because the one who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in Christ's return. And then there, death will escort us to heaven's gates in the presence of our King as we are transformed people, restored to God for His glory and our good. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.